Great. Grab your Bibles, guys, and open them up. I know you just sat down. I'm going to have you guys stand one more time, and we're going to read together God's Word. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Mark 14.1 says, It was now two days before the Passover, and the feast of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Verse 3, And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, As he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly. She broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. And she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is God's word. Father, this is our assignment this morning. We believe that your spirit has written these words down through Mark so that we might understand truth so that we might believe the gospel and be saved, so that we might be sanctified by the truth, that we might be washed in the water of the word, that we might abide in you, Jesus, the branch. We are the church, we are the body, you are the head. And we connect to that head through the word of God. We believe that what we hold in our hands this morning is authoritative over our lives. It has sovereign power over us and that we are not to impose meaning on it. We are to extract meaning from it. We are to uh, expose the truth of this. So Father, will you help us do that work? Because we are intrinsically flawed, deeply sinful and broken. So Spirit of God, come teach your people this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Grab a seat, guys. What do you treasure? What do you treasure? It's probably the most important question you'll ever answer. What do you treasure? Maybe an even more important question would be, how much do you treasure Christ? How do you think about Jesus? Do you think about him as something that's auxiliary to your life? Do you see him as something that is sort of important to you? Do you see him as something that has some value to you? Or do you see him as ultimate value? Do you see him as ultimate treasure? I'm going to make a statement. It might seem a little extreme, but uh, hopefully I'll, I'll prosecute the case of this throughout the sermon. Okay. All sin, all failure, 
All human level evil in the world is all, listen, listen, all a result of a worship disorder. Would you agree? All evil is a result of us not treasuring Jesus to the level that he ought to be treasured. Now just think about that. Just set that to the side and we'll examine if that is true and and how that is drawn out of our passage. Have you guys ever heard the expression that leaves a mark? That left a mark? You know, sometimes we use that to to say, man, I, I got a scar that really left a mark or something happened in your life that really left a mark. This morning's passage is such an amazing event that it really truly leaves a mark on this world. It, it has left a mark on this world. I want to read verse 9 before we get there really quick and just remind you what Jesus says about the moment we're going to look at this morning. This moment we're going about, about to study, here's what Jesus says about it. He says, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now, this thing we're going to look at this morning, this moment where, where uh, this woman, whom we know to be Mary, anoints Jesus' head with this pure nard, this moment is so Pivotal. It's so exemplary. It's so beautiful that Jesus literally ties it to the gospel, enmeshes it with the gospel, marries it to the gospel, and says, wherever the gospel goes all throughout the world, this story is going to come with it in parallel. I don't think we need much more of an introduction than that. That that gives our passage this morning extreme validity and importance and value, doesn't it? The fact. I mean, how many times did Jesus say that about anything? How many times did Jesus interact with someone and and say, the thing that they just did will literally reach to the ends of the earth with the gospel? So what that tells us is that what we're looking at this morning has supreme value. It has great significance. We need to interact with it. We need to understand it. We need to ask the right questions of it. We need to figure out why it's so profound, why it was so powerful. This moment left a mark. It left a mark on the world. But this wasn't the only moment that left a mark in our passage. There's another thing that happens in our passage. And it left a mark as well. It's called the the betrayal of Judas. Judas, right, the character that needs no introduction. Anyone who has any experience with Christianity knows about Judas. It's a familiar name. His name has, has lived in history as what? As the betrayer, as the phony as the false disciple, as the one who was pretending to truly treasure Christ, but at the end of the day, he really wasn't, right? So Judas's story has left a mark as well. And what we're gonna see is, is that the difference between Judas and Mary is what Mark, the gospel writer here, wants us to examine this morning. He puts these two stories together. He, he sandwiches them together. Mark's, or, uh, he sandwiches Mary's story and Judas's story for a reason. And, and, and it's our job as expositors this morning to ask the question, why? Why did he put these two things together? Why do they belong together? What, what is, the, what is the, the connection here with Mary's expression of worship and Judas's betrayal? That's what we're going to look at this morning. And really what we're going to do is we're going to run after this idea of what is a true disciple And what is a false disciple? What is a true disciple and what is a false disciple? I think what what Mark would like us to to interact with this morning is how do we know if we're really Judas or if we're really Mary? If we're really the exemplary uh, disciple or if we're the phony and false disciple. We have a timeless juxtaposition here between Mary and Judas that we need to interact with and work through. So let's dive right in. Verse 1. Let's 
start by understanding what's going on here in the background. Mark is going to give us a backstage pass to see what's happening in the closed doors of the religious leaders of the day, the Sanhedrin, as they're scheming about how to kill Christ. It says in verse one, it was now two days before the Passover and the feast was of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes, that is the 70 members of the high council, the Sanhedrin, were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So Mark has been recording for us this tension that's been building in the the religious leaders as to what to do with Jesus. Jesus has made life very hard for the religious leaders. Why? Because he's stealing their money. He's stealing their notoriety. He's taken over the temple, which was their their money-making scheme. And he's calling them whitewashed tombs. He's not being very kind to them, and, and everyone is, um, is sort of turning on these guys, and they know if we don't deal with this Jesus guy soon, we're going to lose our position. We're going to lose our power, and so Jesus has put them into a place where they are forced almost to choose. Are we going to kill Jesus, or are we going to worship Jesus? And just consequentially, you know, just as a side note, that really is the only options, Either you silence him completely or you embrace him as king. If you really are honest about what Jesus claims to be in the scripture, you don't really get a moderate position. You don't get to be lukewarm. Either he's Jesus, son of God, second person of the Trinity, ruler of the cosmos, all authority given to him, resurrected from the dead, seated at the right hand of the father, or he's a fake. It's one or the other. The Pharisees are forced to have to deal with Jesus. Now, Mark tells us particularly that it's the Passover feast. Why does he mention that? He mentions it because it has a great deal to do with how Jesus is going to die. And Mark is going to, from this point forward, he's going to record the crucifixion of Jesus. That's the centerpiece, Jesus going to the cross. The Passover is significant because... um, Not only is it the time they would sacrifice the the lamb, which Jesus is picturing, but the Passover, as I've said to you guys before, drew millions of pilgrims from all around Palestine into the city of Jerusalem. You have to understand Jerusalem in this moment is a powder keg. It's a tinderbox. It's cram-packed full of pilgrims that have come in, and it's literally the feast that is meant to celebrate uh, the freedom of Israel from dictators. So you can imagine Rome has, has... sort of beefed up their security. They're ready, expecting, waiting for an insurrection of sorts. It's just a tinderbox. Now, the Sanhedrin, the the people that are making money off of the religious cult that Judaism had become, they want to keep Rome happy because if Rome's happy, then their bank accounts are happy. The last thing they want to do is start a riot. The last thing they want to do is create a scene or, or, or something where they are now dealing, going head to head with Rome. So they have a conundrum. They have a quandary here. They need Jesus to be put to death. They need him to be removed. However, they know that the populist at this point very much likes Jesus. He's still very popular. They shouted Hosanna when he entered into the the city. So they have to figure out how do we kill this guy, but how do we do it in a way where no one knows that we did it? How do we remove Jesus from the scene in a way that doesn't start a riot that's going to cause Rome to clamp down hard and it's going to affect us in a negative way? This is what's happening, and this is why verse two says that they needed to find a way, or pardon me, the end of verse one, they needed to find a way to kill him in stealth, okay? They've gone from having hard feelings towards Jesus 
to looking for sinister dealings with Jesus. Now they really want him dead. And by the way, sin always seeks to be in the dark, doesn't it? Okay, we know that. Sin loves to be in the dark. Sin doesn't want to be seen. And people that want to commit sin usually don't want that sin to be known. So when are they going to arrest him? They're going to arrest him in the middle of the night. Now, to arrest him in the middle of the night, they need someone to help them find him. Who's that going to be? Judas. They need an alibi. They need a betrayer. They need somebody that can lead them to Jesus in the middle of the night with torches so that they can arrest him. Uh, By the way, it was not legal to arrest and arraign someone in the middle of the night. They did it nefariously. They did it because they wanted Jesus put to death in secret. And we'll see more about that in the weeks to come. But Mark starts this section here by introducing to us the background that Judas is going to step into. And it's because Judas is meant to be one of the prime characters of our text here this morning. Now, verse 3. While he was at Bethany, you remember Bethany was the home base of Jesus during his ministry in Jerusalem, this little town to the east outside of Jerusalem where Mary, Martha, Lazarus lived. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper... He was reclining at the table. So let me set the scene here for you. Jesus, days leading up, within days leading up to his crucifixion, he probably in the evening is having a celebratory feast at the home of a man named Simon. Simon is a super common name. There's lots of Simons in the Bible. This particular Simon, Mark identifies as being Simon the leper. That's all we really know about him. Some scholars think he may have been the father of um, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, the three siblings that we read about, but we really don't know. All we know is he was a leper. And we know that he was a leper because if he was still a leper, he wouldn't be hosting a feast. Okay, so what that tells us is it's pretty safe to assume that this man probably was a leper until what? Until he met Jesus. And what is he doing? He wants to show gratitude and worship and value to the treasure that he's found in the field, the one who's redeemed him, the one that saved him, Jesus. And so he opens his home to hospitality to celebrate the person of Jesus. But Simon is not the only one present. This account is in all four Gospels, and it's particularly in John chapter 11, if you want to study it more on your own. John gives us a lot more details. Mark here actually doesn't tell us who these characters are other than Simon, Uh, but we know from John chapter 11 that the other people present were Mary, Martha, Lazarus. Now, this is significant because not only does Simon probably have much to be thankful for, but so does Lazarus. Why is Lazarus thankful? Why is he excited to celebrate Jesus? Can you think of any reason? Jesus raised him from the dead days prior to this, perhaps weeks prior to this, okay? And so so Lazarus is immensely thankful. And who else is thankful? How about Mary? How about Martha? Her brother has just been brought back from the dead. Okay, what's my point? My point is that this feast, this moment, is an immense moment of gratitude and celebration of a bunch of people that have had their life irreparably changed and transformed by God's goodness and grace, Sounds like church, doesn't it? What a cool picture of church. We got a bunch of broken people that have been raised from the dead, healed from leprosy, have seen relatives literally raised. I mean, these guys are gushing with thanks to Jesus. And the whole point of this gathering, I guarantee, is to celebrate him. That's the point. Now, in this group, there are different characters, and there's different thinking happening. One of the characters is Mary. 
Now we know because we know the other gospels that Mary is the woman here who is going to anoint Jesus, right? But Mark doesn't tell us that. He just says it's a woman. Okay, so until John's gospel was released years later, you wouldn't really know this was Mary. It would just be a woman, right? But we know Mary was there, and Mary, during this feast, is having this, probably this inner dialogue of thanks and praise of how could I honor Jesus? How could I show gratitude to Jesus for not only raising my brother, but for being Jesus, for being everything to me? What do we know about Mary? Well, we know that she was one who loved to sit at the feet of Jesus. Remember the story? Martha's busy doing many things, type A, controlling the situation, making sure that the food is just right. And and Mary is where? She's just parked in front of Jesus, which would have been really rare, by the way, in that day. Women weren't really usually, they didn't get to sit and have theological conversations. They were busy in the kitchen, right? So the fact that Mary is sitting there with Jesus is astounding. But this woman had deep affection for Christ, deep love for Christ. And I would imagine she's at this dinner feast looking for a way to show it perhaps thinking in her mind, what could I grab? What could I give? What could I do to express this thanks and this love that I have for Jesus? What could possibly be enough? Now, Mary's not the only one there. It's safe to assume the disciples are there. We know Judas is there because John tells us in his gospel that Judas is the one that has a real issue with what Mary does. Judas is there as well. And Judas, I would imagine at this time, is not super interested at this point in treasuring Jesus. He's more interested in treasuring treasure. Because Judas at this point had been making small and calculated decisions uh, to, to choose to steal out of the purse. We learn from other gospels that Judas was slowly and systematically stealing money straight out of the purse from Jesus. Jesus knew. He was aware. Judas's heart had been growing cold. It had been growing out of love for Jesus and into love for self, out of affection and adoration for Jesus, his treasure, and into affection and adoration for treasure itself. Judas loved money. He loved money. And his love of money had been growing. And we see the the true love of his heart exposed for a moment here. Just, Just for a moment, we see it exposed. And that's what happens with sin, by the way. You can't hide it forever. If you really love something other than Christ, it will be seen at some point. Judas no longer loves Jesus. He is considering betrayal probably at this point. He is perhaps sickened by the sight of all these people doting over Jesus. He is, he's, he's thinking about money. He's thinking about himself. And this is the scene that we step into here in our text. Now a woman, verse three, came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now, there's many cultural considerations you need to be aware of here in order to really maximize and understand what's happening, okay? First of all, women did not join the feast at the table. The men would sit at the table and the women would only come in if they were bringing food. They would eat multi-course meals. They're not sitting at a table with their feet flat on the ground. They're laying around a table, leaning on their arm with their feet out to the side. And Mary, where should she be? Well, culturally, she should be off doing something, making herself busy. But instead, Mary has something else in mind. So I can imagine as she's searching around in her mind, how can I express my worship and thanks and gratitude to Jesus, this treasure, she goes and picks up this alabaster 
box or this alabaster flask. Now, what is this thing? It, it, was, it was something that we learned was as valuable as a year's wages. Okay, a year's wages. Median income in Grants Pass, something like 45000 a year, I don't know, per household, maybe more. So you can imagine this thing is maybe $45,000 worth of perfume. It's highly, um, it's not diluted, it's, it's highly strong. So you, the, the idea of it is that you would take a little bit of a drop at a time, and this thing would be meant to last a lifetime, perhaps more. One little drop was all you need. Now people, this is the Middle East, okay, it's hot, there all the time. It's, it's, it's people, uh, they don't have as good a hygiene as we probably would prefer, you know, in, in, in our day. So perfume is, is a helpful thing. This particular perfume was something Mary could never have bought on her own. It was probably something that was passed down in her family. It was probably something that had been given to her by perhaps her, her parents. We don't know. But what we do know is it's incredibly valuable. And the other thing we know is that it would be odd for Mary to come up and do what she did to come up and to break the entire thing and dump it all over Jesus' head. The smell would be overwhelming. The whole house, we learn, was filled, right? And, and we know from other gospels that she didn't just anoint his head, she anointed his feet, and she used his, her hair to soak this perfume, this cologne, whatever it is, into his feet. Now, what is she doing here? She is expressing the affection that she has for Christ in a way that to her probably didn't feel strange at all. She is, in essence, the realization of the kingdom parable that Jesus says. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up, then with joy went and sold all that he had to buy the whole field. This is really a real-life example of that parable. Mary doesn't care about how much she's spending on Christ. If she had more, she would spend more. Now where the story gets interesting here is the reaction, the feelings of some present. The reaction of some is not inspiration or a desire for participation. Hey, Mary, can I join? You know, can I help? No, it's instant condemnation and indignation. Look at verse four. There were some who said to themselves, indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. That word scolded is extreme displeasure. It literally means they flared their nostrils at her. They, they are showing here a, a visceral disgust with Mary and what she's doing. And there's probably a lot of layers to this, and I want to be careful not to, to guess too much here, but what, what do we know about Mary? We know Martha seems to already kind of have this idea about her that she's kind of a slacker. Maybe not, maybe not the one that, that um, is always making the best decisions. You kind of get the sense when you see Martha complaining to Jesus about Mary that maybe Martha, or that maybe Mary had sort of developed for herself a little bit of a reputation of just kind of being in the moment. You know those people? You're like, hey, I'm glad you're in the moment, but we got to go. I'm glad you're in the moment, but we're late. I'm glad, you know, she, she was an in-the-moment person. I don't think it's a stretch to say that Mary's family is probably like, ah, that was passed down by our parents. That's a year's wages, Mary. This is, oh, what are you thinking? Why would you do that? They're frustrated. Now, we know in the other Gospels, it says Judas was the one that 
complain, but here it makes it sound like it was just some of them. In fact, probably most of them. The, the general consensus, the general feeling in this moment is kind of like, that can't be right. Surely that can't be the right thing to do for Mary to come and to break this entire thing, to dump it out. Surely that can't be the right thing to do. Now we know Judas, we learn this in the other gospels, Judas was thinking about the money that he now couldn't steal. He was thinking if we had sold that, it would have been more money in the purse and I could have stole it. So Judas is seeing money wasted. The other disciples, I think, are just a little bit confused about why Jesus is here and who Jesus is. See, they still think Jesus came uh, in order to do something for them and rather, to be every, and rather than be everything for them. See, they think that following Jesus is about doing for him rather than delighting in him. And that's an important point. Don't miss that. See, false religion always says, no, following God is about doing things for God. Christianity says, no. Christianity is about delighting in who God is and then doing things for God subsequently. So they're hardwired for legalism here, and they go, this can't be right. What, what kind of religion would it be where we lavishly waste all of this money in order to delight in this person? Surely it would be a better thing to go out and be productive with that money, Right? They are still thinking more about what Jesus is here to do rather than who Jesus is here to be. They see Jesus as the means to an end, some other end perhaps, not the end himself, right? Now this is insulting to Mary, isn't it? They, they clearly have a little bit of, of, of a disdain for her in the way that she makes decisions. What are you doing, Mary? What are you doing? But not only is this disrespectful to Mary, it's disrespectful to Jesus. I mean, they're basically saying, he's not worthy of this. That's really what they're saying. Why would you waste that on Jesus? How insulting. And then they cover it up, they smooth it over with a, a typical thing that we do in, in our own subconscious, which is, is to make it look good by saying, well, we could give that to the poor. Couldn't we? This plastic piety, this fake pretentious concern for the poor, they, they weren't concerned for the poor. It wasn't, that wasn't really what they were bothered by. It was more that they didn't see Jesus as worthy of this. Now, isn't this what we always do? We always smooth over our evil motives with some kind of philanthropic virtue signaling, don't we? Look at Hollywood. You got some of the worst human beings in the world doing some of the worst things in the world, but they give to charities, you know, and, and they celebrated Pride Month this week. They put a rainbow on their Instagram. Good for them, you know. Um, you, know you know, Johnny Depp might be a terrible person, but, you know, he did give money to that thing. And, um, you know, th this, is, this is what we do. We love to find ways to be evil and then to say or state that we're concerned for the poor at the same time. And the reality is Jesus knows these guys aren't really in this moment concerned for the poor. I mean, how many boards have embezzlers in the board who pretend to be super stingy about how money is spent? Judas is pretending to be concerned with the poor, but he's not really. I think about Mary here. How many, how many people that have started to treasure Christ in the way that he deserves are told to calm down by those who have not found that love for Jesus? Calm down, Mary. Calm down. Anybody ever told you to calm down? when you're really expressing gratitude to Christ, you're truly found Jesus to be the supreme value in the universe and you're, you're living in such a way that actually reflects that and what, what do people say? Hey, you need to tone it down a little bit. No. Mary was the only one in the room in this moment that understood that Jesus was the whole deal. 
She was smitten by it. He was the whole deal. Now, verse 6, listen to how Jesus responds. I'd imagine at this point they're, they're maybe expecting Jesus to agree with them, maybe scold Mary. It's not what Jesus does. Jesus said, leave her alone. Back off, he says. Why do you trouble her? She has done a, note it, a beautiful thing, a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. So Jesus is, is really doting on her faith in this moment. He's saying it's beautiful. This is a beautiful expression of worship. You guys really should not be coming down on her right now. Now, Jesus is not retracting the call to care for the poor, What Jesus is doing is he is reinforcing the fact that he's leaving. He's saying, you should care for the poor, but the poor will be here. In a few days, he says, I'm not going to be here. It was no mistake. Jesus had tried telling these guys that he was going to die. So he's trying to prepare them for the fact that what Mary's doing is, is really something she won't be able to do in a week. In five days, she may not be able to anoint me in this way. So she's capitalizing on this particular moment. Jesus is not questioning if we should care for the poor. He's questioning how we care for the poor, when we care for the poor, and why we care for the poor. Let me break those down. First of all, he's questioning uh, why we care for the poor. We don't care for the poor in order to make us feel better about ourselves, right? We don't care for the poor so that we can continue to live our secret sinful life and feel good like we're good people at the end of the day, right? Jesus isn't interested in that kind of philanthropic work. He isn't interested in the billionaire who's, who's, who's really just trying to find ways to smooth things over with the public and be able to lay his or her head down on the pillow at the end of the night. That's not why we should care for the poor. It, he's, he's changing uh, when we should care for the poor. When should we care for the poor? After we have valued Christ as the first and foremost important thing in the world. We need to be people that are caring for the poor from a place of worship to Christ. Otherwise, we, we're doing it for, for some selfish motive. And lastly, we need to care for the poor. How? We need to care for the poor uh, through the gospel. See, feeding people isn't going to fix the world. Did you know that? That's why the Great Commission, listen, this is why the Great Commission wasn't go feed the hungry. What was the Great Commission? Go make disciples, teaching them to do all that I've said. Why? Because the world will change through transformed humans, not through full stomachs. Having said that, we need full stomachs, right? It's a God's common mercy that we as Christians can be activated in feeding the hungry. But what we understand is this world will only be changed if humans change. And humans change through salvation and transformation by the gospel. So that is our first priority. Now that's why as a church, do we have a benevolence fund? Do we try to give money to people that are in need? Do we think about the poor in our community? Yes, but that's secondary to what? the work of making disciples. The church is not simply an organization to feed people or else we wouldn't be a church. We'd be a food pantry. The church is a place to make disciples. Part of making a disciple is engaging people in that kind of work, absolutely. And so Jesus is really putting things in line for them. He's putting priorities in place for them. Now, verse nine, truly I say to you, Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. It's a stunning statement that I already read to you. Now, it's interesting that Mark doesn't tell us who she is. And I think the reason is because Mark isn't interested in us knowing who she is. Mark is interested in who she isn't. 
See, this, the fact that a woman is the one to be the supreme example of what a disciple looks like in the room in those days would be stunning. It's not Peter who's getting it. It's not John who's getting it. It's not James who's getting it. It's Mary. It's Mary. Mary's getting it. She's the example here of what a disciple looks like. And it's not about who Mary is. It's about who Mary is worshiping. That's the center of this. Jesus is the one that has captivated her. Jesus is the one that has brought her to the place where she can't not give the most expensive thing she owns. Jesus is the center of this text. Now, verse 10, Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, notice that Mark mentions that. I think we should take note of that. It's those who are closest to Jesus that are still susceptible to failure. Good grief, Jesus spent, or Judas spent all of this time with Christ. He was with him every day. He knew all of these things, and he was still had a hardened heart. He still didn't treasure Christ. So Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Why did they promise to give him money? Because that is what Judas wanted. It's what the delight of his heart had become. That's what he got up in the morning for now. It's what he thought about, money. What do the chief priests need Judas? Well, they need him to find, as I said, they need him to find Jesus in the dark. But they also need a fall guy, see? They, they want to get away squeaky clean with this. So if they let the Romans kill him, and they let Judas betray him, they have this idea that we'll walk away scot-free. That was their plan. Everything's working seemingly perfectly for them. And they throw Judas to the side as though he's nothing. And that's what sin does, isn't it? Sin uses us and throws us to the side. Judas was useful for a moment, and that was it. Now, that's our text. That's our passage. What are we to do with it? What are we to think about it? I told you in the beginning that I think Mark here is trying to get us to look at these two, uh, these two personas, these two characters, Judas and Mary, and, and ask questions about what is the difference between these two. And I think Judas embodies a false disciple, and I think Mary embodies for us the, the true disciple. So what we're going to do is, the last few minutes here, we're going to look at four differences between true disciples and false disciples. And I put this on your handout if you want them, so you, you don't have to worry about writing them down. Four differences between true and false disciples. Here we go. Number one. Number one, true disciples see Jesus as the end and the means, whereas false disciples see Jesus as the means to another end. In other words, Christians, false disciples, or true disciples, they see Jesus as being the whole deal. They see him as being the goal. They see him, him as being the thing we're trying to get to, the thing we're trying to, to focus on, the thing we're trying to, to fully embrace. False disciples see Jesus as something to be used or spent in order to get something other than Jesus. And people do it all the time. People use Jesus in the name of Jesus to get what they really want, which is worldly accolades or more comfort or, or whatever. True disciples are like Mary. They see Jesus as being the goal, okay? Mary's gift was not uh, about elic eliciting or, 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 or trying to get something from Jesus. She's not, you know, if I could give Jesus something, then maybe I would level up. Maybe Jesus would love me more. Maybe Jesus would like me more. Mary's gift was a gushing, reciprocal response to the most valuable human that she had ever found in her entire life. 
if you had a dollar a day, let's say, that's all you had. You're like many people in the world who live off a dollar a day. And every day you get up in the morning and there's your dollar. It's sitting at the front of your door and you get your dollar and you're living off that dollar. How precious would that dollar be to you? Now let's say you continue to get that dollar every day. But someone says, you know, I'm going to now place $1 billion a day in front of your house. Billion dollars a day. Sweet. How precious is the dollar that you used to get compared to the billion dollars that you're now getting. I mean, would you even get up in the morning to go get it from the front of your door? And that, that sounds kind of absurd, but this is what's happening here. See, see, Mary used to have this treasure, this alabaster box, this thing that she thought was really valuable, and perhaps she set it up on her shelf. It was one of her prized belongings. It's this thing that she always had as sort of the security blanket, this comfort. Maybe someday I could sell this if I needed to. This has sentimental value to me. It's just nice insurance to know that I have this thing that's valuable. And at, and at one point, she probably wouldn't have given anything for it. At one point, there probably wouldn't have been anything in her life that she would have been seen valuable enough to give this box until she met Jesus. And now she's searching around her house, what could I give to Jesus? I'll give him the most valuable thing I own, and I don't even care about it. She just, what, what happened? She's been given a billion dollars a day. Jesus is the, the, the means and the end. He is the ultimate value. He is the supreme value. Her box doesn't matter anymore. And this is why Christians do radical things. This is why Christians go into places where they know they'll be killed. This is how Jesus, this, this is how the disciples could throw their lives away and, and, and preach the gospel even though they knew it would cost them the most valuable possession they had in their life, which is their life itself because of supreme worth of Christ. Some of you don't have a clue what I'm talking about. It's because you haven't been affected by the supreme worth of Christ yet. And when you do, it changes everything. And all of the stuff that you thought was really valuable, it's garbage. So Paul says in Philippians, he says, everything that I counted valuable, all of my Phariseeism, all of my doctorate degrees, all of my learning, all of my prestige, he said, it's rubbish. He says, it's rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. That is why, Philippi, that is why this woman is intrinsically tied to the gospel. Because the gospel is not about doing first, it's about finding. It's about finding ultimate value in Christ and worship being an expression of that. That's why the gospel took the world by storm in the first century. It's why it's still taking it by storm because the gospel is presenting Jesus as the treasure. And those who see him as treasure go, I want that. And everything that I used to count valuable is no longer important. So Jim Elliot, who gave his life serving Christ, said he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Christians are those who see Jesus as so valuable, there's nothing we can't give. When Jesus is your everything, you can give up anything, right? Now, <laughs> unlike Mary, who spent herself because she loved Jesus, Judas, listen, Judas spent Jesus to love himself. He saw Jesus as something to be spent in order to chase a, what he thought was a superior treasure. Mary saw Jesus as the treasure, so she sold her treasure to give it to him. Judas saw Jesus as an inferior treasure and sold him to get 
what he thought would please him. This is what the world is doing. Okay? This is what the world is doing. If self is your ultimate treasure and source of pleasure, then all must be sacrificed to obtain self-satisfaction. If you live for yourself as your highest goal in life, you will sacrifice anyone and anything in order to please yourself. This is why people are willing, like Judas, who sold out Jesus, the supreme value of the universe, God himself, for 30 pieces of silver. This is why Judas did this. This is why people will literally lose their marriage over a sleazy porn addiction or a short affair. This is why people will lose their children because they just want one more hit. This is how people lose their credibility and lose their job and lose their character over a few minutes of pleasure. How do you do that? Well, when self is your highest value, you will give anything for it. But flip that over. What does gospel freedom look like? Gospel freedom says, I have everything I need. Jesus is everything I need. He is all treasure in the universe. He is all value. And so I don't need anything from this world so I can say no to the temptations of this world because I'm full. I'm satisfied. You know what that's called? It's freedom. It's called freedom. Why, why, why are people slaves to sin, slaves to addiction, slaves to this world? Be, because they have to be. Because they haven't found something satisfy, satisfying enough to be able to say no to the world. It's only when our hearts are full that we are free to be free from addiction and sin. So I'm going to ask you, is there anything anyone could give you or threaten to take from you that would make you consider giving up Christ? If there is, I suggest that thing is a little too important to you. And the answer, by the way, is not to love that thing less, it's to love Jesus more. Maybe some of you are saying, well, I really love my kids. And if someone said, deny Christ or I'll, I'll kill your kids, how, how could you possibly say anything but, but, but what you'd have to do to make your kids leave? And I would suggest to you the answer to that is not love your kids less. It's love Jesus more. And if you don't love Jesus more than anything in this world, it's not because he isn't lovable or valuable. It's because you're not looking at him. The more you know Christ, the more you'll value Christ. He is the treasure in the field. And where your treasure is, church, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you love something more than Christ, it's because you've invested something in something other than Christ. This is why as Christians, we invest ourselves in the kingdom. And as we invest ourselves in the kingdom, our heart begins to grow for Christ. Our love begins to grow for Christ. Our lives begin to look more like missional lives, sacrificial lives for Christ. That's what a disciple looks like. A disciple is not a disciple because of their doing, but because of their treasuring, because they treasure Jesus. Are you with me? You guys here this morning? Okay, number two. True disciples know that without Jesus, they are nothing. False disciples think that Jesus wants them because they're really something. See, Mary, I, I really think Mary knew that she was nothing and that now that she had Jesus, she was something, but only because of Jesus. He was the catalyst. Judas, I think Judas kind of thought Jesus was lucky to have him on his team. I think Judas kind of thought like, man, I understand why Jesus picked me, you know? Peter probably thought the same thing. A lot of the apostles, I think, thought maybe, maybe they were really something special. Maybe that's why Jesus picked them. And, and this is what false religion looks like, right? False religion looks like Jesus wants me because of what I can give to Jesus. He really needs me. 
What does the gospel say? Jesus picked me not because of anything that I've done or anything I can contribute, but purely because of his own grace and his own kindness. Now, let me tell you why that'll set you free. Let me tell you why if you're enslaved right now to doing, it's false religion. Let me tell you how the gospel sets you free. Okay, here's what happens. When you see that God chose you because you're really something, you have to really be something. And what happens when you're not really something? You have an existential crisis. What happens when you fail? What happens when you blow it? What happens when you stumble? What happens when you trip and you go, man, I, I, I thought God loved me because of what I did, but now I'm failing. Or the other side of the coin is you really crush it. You really do well. You really do some things awesome. And, and, and then what do you think? Well, God really owes me. That's called false religion. I'm doing good. God should bless me. I think Judas thought he was crushing it and that Jesus really should be doing more for him. False religion leads to two things. Listen, it leads to hating yourself and hating God. Sometimes at the same time, sometimes at different times. You hate yourself in false religion because you're never enough and you're always trying to do more. You hate God because he never does enough for you because you think he really should hook you up, right? You really think that you deserve something from him. Now, isn't it ironic? Don't miss this. Isn't it ironic that Judas, who hated God and hated himself, killed Jesus and then killed what? Himself. That's where false religion leads. You want to hate yourself, hate God, hate everybody else? Don't believe the gospel. False, believe a false religion that says that you deserve God's love and that you've done enough to earn God's love and that he picked you because you're just really something special. No, he picked you because he's good for his own glory, by his own grace. And what does that give you, guys? It gives you freedom. Freedom to serve him. Freedom to worship him. Freedom for, for Mary. You know, Mary didn't go into her closet and go, how much do I have to give Jesus for him to be proud of me? That thought didn't enter her head. She gave the whole thing. She wasn't trying to get him to be proud of her. She wasn't trying to get him to love her more. She wasn't trying to earn his affection. She just had it already. So she said, take it. It's already yours. That's what happens when Jesus becomes that value to you. It's freedom. Number three. Number three, true disciples are moved by the cross. False disciples abuse the cross. Let me say that again. True disciples are moved by the cross. False disciples abuse the cross. The cross has an interesting effect on people, doesn't it? That had a very different effect here on Mary and on Judas. Mary, you know, uh, Jesus says specifically that she was anointing him for burial. I think that Mary was aware of the fact Jesus was about to die. Why do I think that? Because he said it over and over again. And guess who was listening? Mary was listening. Well, the disciples were trying to rebuke Jesus and say, you know, you can't, be, you can't possibly mean that because we know the Messiah and he's got all this power. And Mary's sitting there and she's going, he's going to die. And I think that Mary was so tuned in to the fact that Jesus' body was going to be mistreated that she wanted to bless his body in anticipation for that. I think that she knew that that's what she was doing. What does that mean? It means that the cross for Mary was seeing that he was giving his everything so she could give her everything. The cross had a different effect on Judas, didn't it? He saw the cross as an opportunity to capitalize on what he could get from Christ. It's very different. The cross 
And the way that you think about the cross says a lot about whether you're a Christian. See, for the Christian, we're moved by the cross. We see the cross as the reason that we follow Jesus because he first loved us, because he gave his life in order to give us righteousness, make us right with the Father, adopt us, give us the Spirit, call us, give us eternal life. The cross is something that moves us to righteousness and holiness and worship. But for the false disciple, the cross moves them often to apathy. Well, fire insurance, Jesus loves me anyways. I can sin. And what you're doing in that moment is you're doing what Judas did. You're saying the cross is something for me to capitalize on. It's something that gives me the freedom to do something that I know God hates. The Christian hates their sin because they're looking at the cross and they see what their sin cost God. The cross had this effect on Mary where it it led her to to worship. It wasn't fire insurance. Isn't it interesting how the, the cross is so dividing in our culture? Some people are repulsed by the cross. They think, what kind of God is gonna pour out his wrath on his son? What kind of divine child abuse is that? Some people are offended by the fact that we would tell them they need to repent from their sin. They would say, what kind of unwoke nonsense is that? I'm a good person. No, you're not. The cross tells you you're not a good person. The cross tells you the Father's wrath was abiding on you and Jesus absorbed that wrath. The cross hardens the heart that hates God and softens the heart that trusts God. That's why, church, our number one job here is to believe the gospel every day because we come back to the cross, it softens us and leads us to a Mary-like posture of worship and expression and adoration and thankfulness and freedom and joy. And even if the world says, calm down, we say, you don't know my God. You don't know my treasure. You don't know how powerful Jesus is, how beautiful Jesus is. I have to worship him. I cannot worship him. And the world says, you're insane. And we say, I'm not insane. You just don't know how valuable Christ is. This is why this woman in this moment is our our example of discipleship. If Christianity ever looks like anything other than this, it's not Christianity. If Christianity is about me doing good so I can get good from God and feel good about myself, that's not Christianity. Christianity is about the treasure. And Jesus is the treasure. Number four. True disciples look for opportunities to sacrifice self for the Savior. False disciples look for opportunities to sacrifice the Savior for themselves. And this is similar to my last point. I just want to make a very simple point here that I think is profound. And that is, as Christians, we need to see that we have a unique opportunity right now to live for Christ, to sacrifice for Christ, to anoint Christ's body in a way that we will never have again. See, Mary looked at Jesus and she thought, I, can, I may never get to do this again. Oftentimes we think about serving Jesus radically and what do we think to ourselves? We think, I'll do that later. Right now, I'm just really enjoying um, the life that I'm living. Right now, I'm just really enjoying the comfort that I'm living in. And and this idea of radically doing something for Jesus, I I don't know. Let me just suggest to you that, first of all, living radically for Christ, living sacrificial for Christ is the Christian life. And it always has been. Now, let me suggest to you that there is certain things, there are certain things, listen to me, there are certain things you can do right now in your life that you will never be able to do again. There are certain ways that you can anoint the body of Christ and anoint what Christ loves. There are certain sacrifices you can make in your life that you will someday, maybe even in eternity, wish you had. Mary capitalized on an opportunity. Let me put a finer point on it. What is the body of Christ that's before you? 
You say, well, Jesus isn't here. He's in heaven, so how am I supposed to anoint his body with, with pure nard? What does that look like? Okay, well, what is the body of Christ? What is the body that Christ left behind for us to handle with love and worship? It's the church. They will know you are Christians by your love. Implied in that is the love for the church. The way we care for one another is the way we anoint the feet and the head of Christ. The way you love each other radically and by extension love the lost and make disciples in this world is the way we anoint the feet and the head of Christ. And I would suggest to you that you will never get the opportunity that you have right now in this season of your life to love Jesus the way you can. For some of you, mothers, it's loving your kids. It's discipling your children. It's loving your husband. For some of you, men, it's witnessing at work and working hard for the glory of God. For some of you, it's coming here and radically loving each other. It's coming here and pouring yourself out as the body of Christ, building itself up in love. What is the body in front of you? And listen, what is the ointment or what is the perfume that you have in your closet? What has God given you? Jesus doesn't say this is exemplary because it cost more than $40,000. He says it's exemplary because it was all she had. It was exemplary because for her it was costly, just like the two copper coins, right, that were thrown in. So what do you have that you can give? For many of you, it's not your money. It's your time. And for some of you, it's not your time. It's your attention, You know what the body of Christ really needs? It needs your time and your attention and your affection. You know what everyone in this room is is, is poor in? Not food. Probably not. Probably poor in affection, in care, in love, in being seen, in being heard. And this is what makes the body of Christ filthy rich because we come in here and we have people ready to pour out what they have on one another. For this to be a healthy church, we have to come here not just looking to take in a service as a consumer, to grade the worship and grade the sermon and grade how hot it was and grade the kids' ministry, but to come in here and say, I have an alabaster flask. It's called my time. It's called my worship. It's called my love. It's called my affection. I know where the body of Christ is. It's right here. I'm going to show up and I'm going to spend myself to glorify Jesus through glorifying his body. That is Christianity. We've forgot that, haven't we? We don't come here to sit and take. We come here to be the church. We come here to be the church. Now, in conclusion, Mary left a mark on Christianity and a mark on this world. Why? Because Jesus left a superior mark on her. She was never the same. And the way that we leave a mark on this world is by allowing Christ to have, Christ's gospel to have a serious mark on us. Where do we start? We start by believing the gospel, okay? I'm going to give you three steps to following Jesus. Ready? Step one, believe the gospel. Ready? Number two, believe the gospel. Step three, believe the gospel. Step four, believe the gospel. Step five, believe the gospel. (laughs) I'm not kidding you. This is the Christian life, believing the gospel over and over and over again. And what does that mean, Sam? It means I come to the treasure and I see him as everything and so I can give him anything because he's done everything for me. That's the Christian life. That's how we grow. We grow by believing the gospel every day, every second, every moment. Did you guys write those down? Five steps. Tomorrow morning, wake up. Step one, believe the gospel. You're gonna sin five minutes later. What do you do? Step two, believe the gospel. 
You're gonna feel despair and anxiety and you're gonna feel like you're not enough the next few minutes later. What do you do? Step three, believe the gospel. You're gonna cut someone off in traffic. You're gonna show anger. And then you're gonna feel guilty over your anger. What do you do? Step four, believe the gospel. You're gonna get to work and your boss is gonna make you feel little. You're gonna feel like you're searching and reaching for some kind of significance. You're gonna have an existential crisis. What do you do? Step five, believe the gospel. The answer is right there. It's who Jesus is, what Jesus has done what Jesus will do and is doing. Amen? Amen. Father, as we now continue to be the church, as we turn our chairs, as we have a discussion, Holy Spirit, we welcome you into this room. And Lord, I pray that we could live out what we've just seen, Lord, that we could minister to one another through these discussion questions, Lord, through people's hurt, through people's pain. Father, in the next 10 to 15 minutes, Holy Spirit, would you minister here? Would you work this out as we discuss it and have a conversation? In Jesus' name, amen.